Hi guys, it's Ali McKenzie here, sports physio from the UK, and welcome back to another episode of Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we have Nick Cross. Nick is an Australian sports physio from Melbourne. He is the director of Melbourne CBD Physiotherapy, and he holds degrees in sport and exercise science, physio, and currently reading his master's in sports physio at La Trobe University. He works closely with Ebony Rio, Jill Cook and Craig Purdom and has extensive experience working in AFL, athletics and ballet where he has a large focus on the management of posterior heel pain. Nick is currently undergoing an excellent research project looking into the clinical practices in musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapists from the diagnosis of Achilles tendinopathy in patients. In this episode we are going to discuss the rationale behind Nick's project and a case study to pull out some key insights into the management of Achilles tendinopathy, whilst also highlighting some key discrepancies in current diagnosis and management of posterior heel pain. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nord Board helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nord Board, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. During a discussion after recording this episode, Nick had kindly agreed to share some excellent video explanations of some of the areas he discusses during this conversation. Please head over to our Instagram account, at informedperformance, and scroll to find these great resources. But for now, you are listening to Research Unpacked with me, Alistair McKenzie, and here is today's episode with Nick Cross. Nick, hello and welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we've been in comms for a while now, so it's great to finally get to sit down and have a chat. How are you, mate? Very well, thank you. Very well. Thanks for having me. Now, thank you for coming on. And before we get started, can you just give the listeners a bit of an insight into your clinical and research-based backgrounds? Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess my, my clinical background started a long time ago. I came from a sports science background um, and, and then I moved into a Master's of Applied Science and Exercise Rehab. So I was practicing as an exercise physiologist for a while and, and then thought, look, I need to get a, um, a better handling on some pathology. Um, not that EPs don't know what they're doing with pathology, but I just wanted a little bit more depth and I thought I'd get that back through uni. So I went back and, and completed a physio degree uh, at the University of Melbourne. And then I practiced for a physio. Oh, I've been practicing as a physio ever since. Uh, and then uh, since since graduating, I went back into uh, a master's of uh, sports physio, which I'm just about to conclude. And then at the same time, um, through a funny story that we can touch on in a minute, I started completing some research through Latrobe, um, which is where I was also completing uh, my master's in sports physio um, in, in tendinopathy, um, and, and I've been doing that for the past, oh, probably just before COVID came around, uh, which is when I kicked it off with uh, with Ebony and Jill and, and Craig through Latrobe. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I don't think any of those need a, an introduction, do they? But uh, I know that you've worked in athletics a lot, um, so that's exposed you to a lot of tendinopathy and posterior heel pain, but can you just share how you got started and got into that? 
Yeah, for sure. Like I, I've always been involved in track and field, even as a little kid. Like I ran competitively, and then as everyone else got quicker uh, and and onto bigger and better ranks, I realised that I wasn't able to go as fast as them. So I thought, well, I still really like this sport. And then as a physio, I kind of um, got more involved uh, on the the physio medical kind of front of it and and uh, and thought well I can be competitive in this space and then I've worked in track and field for oh, a long period of time now um, for Arts Australia and and some other state teams as well and I guess that's how I um, came involved in I became involved with the team at La Trobe in in that I was presenting up at a conference in the Australian national titles um and was invited up there to to talk on um, management of some tendinopathy um, from a uh, track and field perspective. Um, and on the on the uh, on the journey through and, and getting this presentation ready, I, I asked the gentleman who was putting this you know sprints conference together who else is presenting, and and he said, "Oh, I've got this presenter and that presenter," and then. Uh, and then he said, oh, I've got Craig Purdom talking on calf injury. And I was like, oh, God, you know, I've got to present, you know, with Craig Purdom. And, and he says, well, what's the problem with that? And I was like, do you know who Craig Purdom is? He's like, yeah, nice nice physio from up north. And Craig's so modest, like, you know, a lovely, lovely person. Like he would never tell, you know, how, how much research and, and how much he's, you know, paved the way in, in, in physio, um, especially in tendinopathy. And, and when I explain, he says, Oh well, you'll be right, and uh, and so I did the presentation, and, and Craig watched and, and kindly went over my slides uh, beforehand and gave it the tick of approval, which which I really appreciated. Um, and that night after the conference, we we went out for some dinner with a couple of other presenters, and Craig said, "Listen, like that that that's a good set of slides that you put together. Um, how would you feel about catching up with some other people who have also got an interest in tendinopathy?" And, and I, was, I thought about it for a bit and I was like, well, more on my plate and no problem. So I, um, I got put in contact with, with Ebony and, um, and, and some of the extended team at La Trobe. And, and I guess I never looked back since. And I've, and I've had a wonderful time um, working with some great clinical minds and um, being able to pick some uh, brains of, of people who really, you know, um, pave the way in, in, in tendon management and, and will still influence it uh, well and truly into the future. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, a nice big tick of approval, getting that, that from Craig Purden must have felt pretty good, mate. Yeah, I'll look, you know, um, yeah, I think I think anyone would be pretty wrapped. But, um, yeah, it, it was it was a bit daunting, but, um, you know, and I still had a couple of things to fix up here and there. So, uh, yeah, but it, it was great, and 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 Craig just explains things in a really nice, um, humble way. So yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, fantastic. And um, so yeah, this episode is going to be a bit different because, like you said, you're in the process of collecting your data for some of the research at Latrobe. Um, so just to kick things off, I really wanted to firstly promote that because I know it's a global research project. Um, producing a survey on how physios working in MSK and sport diagnose Achilles tendinopathy. And like you said, just there, you've got people like Ebony Rio, Craig Purdom, Jill Cook, and the extended team. Um, so it's a, it's a big project with probably the, the biggest names in, in tendon management. So 
can you talk a little bit about your project and what paved the way for this? How did you notice that it was an important thing to look into? Yeah, for sure. I think when I was presenting at the conference, uh, I caught up with I caught up with Ebony and and we um, were explaining a few things that were part of my presentation and how we should conduct some research on that. And we discussed that for a couple of months and thought it was a good idea and um, and then we pumped the brakes on it and said, oh, I think we need to go back a little bit um, before we try and move forward into um, some of more of like the the diagnostic kind of um, studies so we can actually have some uh, criteria to diagnose people with Achilles tendinopathy. And we we discussed that for a while. And then I think that when we look back now, we've got to go back to like 2019 and we've got to look at the ICON papers that came out. And there was three that were really pivotal that, that influenced this research. So I, sh- I should touch on them. And they were the, that was the paper on the core domains um, of tendinopathy. And, and if we look at this paper, there was a, a really good group of clinicians and multidisciplinary as well, not just physio, who came together to discuss, you know, the the core domains of tendinopathy. And it was agreed in amongst these clinical experts that there are these nine core domains. Um, and to get to have a core domain, it needed to be above like a 70% consensus to say, yes, that is a core domain. And we thought about that for a while. And, and that paper influenced our current research in that, um, we thought, well, these people are all talking together. What are the chances that they've got a pretty similar mindset? So um, we thought about that. And then we've gone into another ICON paper, which is the terminology. So we could say, okay, well, we've kind of got a consensus as to how you might, you know, what are these core domains and what makes up a like a, a presentation of tendinopathy? And we know what we want to call it. Um, but if we go into the third ICON paper again in 2019 that says, but if you go back and we look at um, previous research to say, you know, is there like that nice um, inclusion-exclusion criteria and it's consistent a lot across a lot of the research and does the research, you know, in the past lend itself to meta-analysis? The answer is no. So we're kind of like, all right, if you kind of blend that all together, that's where this research project came out to say, well, if we've got – if we've if we've got a you know uh, the core domains, we know what to call it. But in the past, like you know, that it hasn't been consistent. I wonder what's actually happening in the clinical world to see whether or not there's that um, whether or not the two things are really aligning, and and or or are they or is there a bit of disconnect? I guess. So our project, we thought, well, before we try and pursue diagnostics and. And uh, and getting like an um, a criteria to say that yes you've definitely you've got this type of pathology maybe we should go back and see what's actually happening in the clinical world because maybe there's a chance that there there's not that seventy percent consensus in and amongst your everyday clinician and that's not to talk down your everyday clinician but that's where you know the the general pop and and people are seeking you know um, seeking an opinion so. We put together a, uh, a a survey, I guess, um, to then send out to physios who work in sports and musculoskeletal physio to see um, how they diagnose 
Achilles tendinopathy. And we thought, well, do we need to get 30, 40 people? And, and to consider that we wanted to do a global scale, we thought we'd, we'd gun for the 1,000, which, you know, at the time we thought would be really easy to do and it turned out to be a little bit more difficult and I think we're at about 750. But we thought that that would be a good clinical snapshot to see, you know, where the physio sits in diagnosing this condition. And I thought we, th- we thought about it for a bit and we thought, well, we'll go global because then we can not only see how people do it in Australia, but we can have a look at the UK and America and, and New Zealand and, and all over the place. So we've, we've been collecting these responses from, from all around the world and, and we've been doing that for the best part of nearly two years and, um, and, and soon that this, this trial will, um, will draw to a close and, and we'll be able to present, I think, some really cool data to then justify why we want to do things into the future. And I think also um, to really try and bring the two worlds together as, 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 a, as a collective. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And it sounds like it's just important to get a, a fair lay of the land regarding how clinicians of different experiences and backgrounds manage and assess Achilles-related pain, um, as well as these clinical experts. So for me, that's right, it's a really bit, important bit of work and a big task for you and that's why i wanted to get you on the show to discuss the project and use the platform to promote it and hopefully get some of our listeners to contribute and and drive it forwards um i've done it and it takes about 10 minutes to do um, and we'll share links on our social media platforms for those listening who would like to contribute so at the end of the episode please jump over to a social media and fill it out for for Nick and the guys at Latrobe, um, and thank you in advance for doing that. Um, but as you're in the process of collecting your data, mate, we had the idea together to go through a little case study on how you might go about assessing and managing an Achilles tendon issue uh, to get some of your clinical insights. So, how's that sound for you? That's not a problem. Not a problem. <laughs> All right, so let's jump in. So. Okay, so Monday morning, you've got a young, long-distance runner presenting in your clinic with a long-standing history of posterior heel pain. She was previously diagnosed and treated as Achilles tendinopathy on the contralateral leg. For the last six months, however, she has had fluctuations in her symptoms, but due to the insidious onset, she thought it would resolve with the same management as her previous injury. So based on that short little snippet, that little window... And based on location and the athlete, what are your key differential diagnoses that you would consider to start with? Where does your clinical reasoning start with, mate? For sure. I think that when someone comes in with that information, just because they've had Achilles tendinopathy in the past um, and they've got posterior heel pain, we can't just jump down the line of, well, it's all going to be, it's in the posterior heel, it has to be Achilles tendinopathy. Because there's so many different anatomical structures in the posterior heel that can have the ability to present like Achilles tendinopathy. So I think the first thing, um, the key, the key information is where is it sore, or where are your symptoms, and and where is it, where are your symptoms under load? Um, because I think. That's you know considering how a tendon works, um, I think that's that's the vital piece of information, and and you can then start to understand you know um, 
the structures that might be at play. The other thing is that you you want to probably understand um, is you know how long they've had that symptom for, um, where this. Um, that's another thing I'd consider, like the like how the symptoms start. Like you know, is there a warm up phenomenon, or does it come later on in in a, in a training event? Um, is it is it you know small pinching area or broad region? Because then you might be able to you know start to differentiate between like mid portion or peritonin. Um, yeah, so I think the take trying to take a bit of a um, like a holistic view of it and not just jump straight down the guts would be would be my first place to start. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, so not just assuming that she's obviously assumed that she's got Achilles tendinopathy again if the diagnosis was correct on the contralateral, mm-hmm. um, but just because they're coming in with that, not just jumping down and assuming that that's what she's got this time, which might put you on the wrong management plan. Um, For sure. But I think so, then at the same time, like, you know, when you're looking at certain populations, like, you know, because you've got a runner, like you could start to think, oh, maybe this is more going to be Achilles tendinopathy-like presentation because, you know, of, of the way the foot and that, that whole plantar complex acts when, when you're running compared to, say, a ballet dancer who goes into repetitive um, plantar flexion who's who's more known to have posterior impingement signs and and maybe similar to a fast bowler who might be saying listen I get pain when I when I it's not necessarily when I'm running in but when I plant that foot um, and and put my weight over it um, you know they're going into that state of compression in the back of the ankle and, and that's when I get my symptoms so you know kind of understanding your sport and, and the clinical population that you're seeing and then saying, okay, well, what's more likely to be presenting here? And then breaking down, like, when do you get your pain and, and the location and especially under under a state of load? Yeah. Yeah, fantastic, yeah. Um, yeah, I worked in cricket as well and I think every pretty much every fast bowler I looked after had posterior impingement signs um, on their front leg so the leg that hits the crease um a lot of them train from a young age so they get osseous changes like ostrogonums and stuff like that as well um so yeah knowing your sport and like you said just because she's a runner um may present with more achilles tendon just because of that energy storage kind of loads um so you've touched on a few little subjective indicators there that that would help refine your diagnosis what what other things might you look at or specifically look at with regards to pain patterns and loads and, and angles of loading and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, I think that, and this is a hard thing to try and explain, so I'll do my best because I think that I think me personally as a visual learner, I I like to see this in front, but um, you have to go through like a series of, um, like a progressive loading and there's a paper that just came out recently to that you know discusses um that progressive loading and so as you're going through a a progressive loading protocol you're seeing that your your symptoms are going to be um like in particular areas and they may change if you've got mixed presentations but as you're taking someone through a progressive loading protocol um that you're seeing that the symptoms stay in you know relatively same location and they might um, and, and they should see that in like, for instance, like in a mid portion tendinopathy that those symptoms will increase depending on the, 
or as the loading rate goes up. Um, but you, sometimes, like, you can get thrown a couple of clinical curveballs. Um, I think the clinical curveballs are in more like your mixed presentations where someone might have, you know, mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, but then they're also carrying a peritonin, um, you know, um, some signs from their you know, irritation through their peritonin and they're symptomatic through that as well. And so when you're doing your progressive loading protocol and you're having a look and, and they're getting pain with isometrics, you know, and then they're and then they're asymptomatic through a few other things. It can it can kind of be a bit confusing, and so I think then it's trying to actually understand the anatomy and um and then and what's happening to it in certain degrees of plantar flexion, like you mentioned before. And an example of that might be if you've got someone with a peritoneal irritation, and then there's you know an increased you know um, cellular presence in that in that sheath. And someone goes into a plant in, into plantar flexion, um, you know you've got you've, that's a state of compression because um, there's there's additional cellular response in that sheath, and and when you go into that um, plantar flex position, um, the tissue expands and then it compresses into your retinaculum, for example, and and it might you know bring about um, a painful response, and and so it's looking and saying, well, okay is that fitting to what I'm hearing from a subjective point of view? Um, and then trying to like decipher and slowly move your way through, through an assessment that might, you know, take a few little curves along the way um, to try and tease out exactly what's going on in that structure. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So there may be, like you said, a mixed presentation um, mm-hmm. rather than just a one, or they could have had an onset of one, uh, category of presentation and then led into another one due to the the amount of yeah. workload yeah for sure like let's say for instance someone's had a mid-portion um, Achilles tendinopathy and, and they've been symptomatic for a while but they, they the symptoms decrease to a two or three out of ten and so, and then you know during a warm-up and then by the time they finished a warm-up they, they've gone and so the athlete doesn't think anything of it. So for three or four weeks, they train through it because it's not so bad. But they present into clinic and they're saying, listen, like, you know, I've had this pinching feeling for a while. Then I've got this big broad region and the, and the broad region starts to really become problematic towards now the back end of the session. And as a clinician, then you're sitting there going, oh, okay, well, we've got these warm-ups, warm-up phenomenon signs. And so I'm thinking it's mid-portion Achilles tendon pain and, but then what, what's this stuff at the back end? And that, and that can be when you're getting your, um, you know, increased frictional loads for, you know, um, for whatever reason. Um, and then that's when they, and that's when they really start to feel like that their pain comes back. And so you can, and those are the tricky situations um, that you've got to kind of keep a bit of an eye out for because how you might manage them will be different. Um, and so, you know, to really conduct a thorough subjective, you know, not just on the warm-up phenomenon, but what happens at the, you know, at the back end of the session when it cools down, um, and then and then trying to then marry that up in, in in with you know your certain like um, loading rates and then states of of um, you know tissue compression that that might be irritable depending on the cellular response that's gone on within that structure. Yeah, brilliant. So if you're thinking more mid-portion tendinopathy that have a positive warm-up effect 
um, it would be under certain angles of load and then potentially a peritinin would present with more end range plant flexion and have a and won't have a positive warm-up effect it will it will just gradually worsen and worsen is that right yeah then then like someone who might have a peritinum i said listen it's not too bad like i get going and then but it's at the back end of the session it gets sore um but then the following morning it's not too bad when i get out of bed but you know i, I did that for a while and then you know um and, and then it could just as the symptoms get worse or um yeah, and more pronounced that then then they start presenting with a problem. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's really quite layered. Which again, bringing back to your research is why it's really important to understand how people are assessing these because that could easy, you could easily see how that might get mistreated in clinical practice um, if the the diagnosis is that is different and they might go on a progressive loading plan with a peritine and irritation which might not necessarily improve for sure especially if you're trying to push down the the heavy isometrics um and the and the person saying listen like it's not making it any better and then and then you're trying to move into a you know um like an isotonic program and then you know potentially even then going into states of um like negative load or um which will then have the potential to really um, be quite provocative to that peritone and, and and then the person says listen I'm not getting any better and I think that when we look back at the research and and sometimes with these loading protocols and we've said you know in the past only 50% of people get better or respond positively to a loading protocol um, that, that could be a potential reason as to why they're not responding and I think that not that the loading protocol is not going to work but it's just trying to then as a clinician pick apart and say, when do I actually want to apply that intervention? Because yeah, as we just said, in some points like you you might need to you will need to manage that peritonin first before you then start hunting um, you know after after you know potentially like a mixed presentation when you're hunting that um, mid portion into these tendopathy as well. Yeah, fantastic. And you obviously know Ebony Rio really well. Um, and her work has been pretty seminal in in the loading and especially around analgesics and stuff like that. And we, from my experience as a really fairly young clinician, you kind of get this tendon, you go, Oh, so yeah, it's a tendon problem. I'm going to, I'm going to do isometrics to load. Um, and then I'm going to put them on a progressive loading plan. So really having that detail and understanding of the subcategories of a tendon pain or what's, what structures are really driving their pain at a certain time frame at a certain time point um, will really indicate whether that's the best protocol at that time. It might be later on that you bring that in and it works really efficiently. How would you go about initially treating a peritene and irritation? Is it just your basic kind of letting things settle and load management until that irritation, that cellular response is, has reduced? Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, you, you need to you need to try and bring that under control. And I think that, you know, having a multidisciplinary team uh, is really important in that, in that instance because if, you, if you're thinking that um, analgesics uh, are warranted, then, then you might call on your sports physician um, to assist in that management. Um, and, and then you can start to use your, um, 
you know, your, your clinical skills in your stethoscope auscultations to actually hear when that crepitus might be coming down and, and then also then to start to compare it back to, um, you know, when you're going back in through your progressive loading protocols as well to see when, like, symptoms might be really reducing um, in, in, certain, in certain tests that may have, you know, previously been provocative and then saying, well, okay, things are starting to settle down now. Um, and, and the you know the person presenting with his posterior heel pain can produce you know for instance more force uh, and remain asymptomatic that it might give you a good strong clinical indication as to okay I can begin some form of um, loading protocol with this person um, yeah and then you can make that clinical call as to where you want to begin do I want to go down the isometrics or do I do I want to go isotonics and um, personally, from a from a peritoneum, once they started to settle down, I'm, I'm more down the, the line of the isometric. Um, but again, like uh, you know, Ebony's research was great. Um, you know, with the, with the isometric theory. But you know, when I'm looking at like doing, would I just be applying five by forty five seconds to everyone? Well, um, like in a clinical setting, maybe not. Like I might be going a little bit shorter. Uh, and how I'm getting that that relative load um, will be very individualized um, for yeah for everyone that comes through the door. Yeah, brilliant. Um, you just touched on auscultation then as part of your objective. I've never mm-hmm. used auscultation in clinic for for diagnosis of uh, peritoneal irritation. Can you just describe a little bit about what that looks like as an assessment? For sure. So, like, someone might say, "Listen, I'm getting this. I'm getting these symptoms at the back end of a run, and it's over this broad region. You know, like, um, um, I'd probably say it's. I'm just looking at my own heel now as we're having a chat, but kind of, kind of t- trending more like not up near your muscular tendinous junction, but but above that kind of mid portion um, region, and um, and when you when you get the stethoscope uh, and, you, and you go through your loading protocol and, and they might be sore in certain ranges and then you go into your stethoscope assessment, you can put someone prone um, and you can passively move um, the foot um, in and out of, you know, dorsiflexion to plantar flexion with a stethoscope resting on that um, Achilles tendon like right in the middle. And sometimes you can hear that um, quite coarse crackling and you hear like... <laughs> Um, you should compare to the other side because you do get a bit of skin movement as well and you can hear that, that the stethoscope will pick that up. But you can kind of really hear this distinct kind of grumbly gremlin in the uh, in the tendon. And, um, it's a really cool thing to be able to hear, but it, it, um, how sensitive that is, you know, to say like, um, I don't know yet, but it, it's, a, it's a clinical tool that you might, you know, use to, to draw on a... Um, a clinical diagnosis of a peritoneum and it might just strengthen your clinical reasoning, but you know, how well that works between your, between clinicians, I'm not sure, but I think that it's something that I've used uh, and do use from a clinical, um, in, in a clinical setting. Yeah. Yeah. So it might, you want, you're not going to hang your hat on it, but it might just bolster your reasoning based on everything that you've just discussed regarding um, little subjective indicators suggesting a peritoneum involvement. For sure. That's, that's brilliant, mate. Um, 
let's let's jump on to the next part. So I'm going to give you a little bit more information about our, our runner. Um, so she is now unable to run due to pain, which is in a broad area of the posterior heel. But there's no pinching, but it does feel like bubble wrap in that region, and it feels she describes as quite full. There's no clear warm up mechanism, and she's noticed her symptoms worsen as training goes on as before. She only noticed during the tail end of the session of high speed sessions. Additionally, there is no more no morning stiffness, and she describes her pain now occurring during just walking pace at toe off um, at mid range plant flexion. So there's a there's a lot of information there, but with these new little clinical insights, where where's your thought process going? Um, where's your thought process going now? I probably I I tend to go back to the peritoneum. That's that's where my that's where my brain goes, especially when they're starting to get that that pain at the um, at the back end of a session, and in that mid range um, plantar flexion, you know that the the tissue in that posterior here will expand and then might put pressure on that region. The other thing as well is um, if you're looking at like shearing and frictional loads in that tendon as well, um, when, we're, when we're looking at a, at a runner and we're talking about how much strength they should have in that plantar flexion complex, like if someone's deconditioned, um, you know, through that area or potentially was symptomatic uh, in the past, which, you know, might change their their gait mechanics and it's caused this frictional load. Um, that's something else that you might want to um, have a look at to say, well, I, I'm if you've got that decrease of strength and, and, and function and um, is that actually contributing towards this, um, yeah, if you've got this decreased strength, and and capability through that complex is that actually you know um, a contributing factor as to why this shearing load actually came about, and so you know that that might be a way to um, strengthen your clinical reasoning to say well okay I'm thinking it's a peritoneum and I think this is also the causative effect of it so it's kind of a bit of treatment or it might lead you down that treatment line but it also might give you an explanation as to why that why that pathology or that flare-up occurred in the first place. Yeah, so you're constantly re-updating your diagnosis based on how they respond to your management and your interventions at that time. So say, let's say, for example, that you've cleaned up the peritoneum um, and now they're presenting like that of a mid-portion tendinopathy and you're thinking about putting them on a progressive loading protocol. What What is your progressive loading plan and what kind of things do you consider when progressing them from basic calf capacity work to returning to running? The progressive loading protocol that we use would be like an isometric into like a double leg heel rise, single leg heel rise, double leg jump, single leg pulse, single leg hop, single leg hop for height, and then probably some forward hopping. Um, that that would be the progressive loading protocol um, that we would use uh, in the clinic. Um, and you can make some modifications to that, you know, um, whether or not you want to increase like a like – a, or introduce a decline board and depending on what, what structures and that you're trying to, um, you know, uh, and differential diagnosis you might be trying to tease out. 
Um, but that, that's the loading protocol that we use. And then kind of coming back into, and then trying to progress from that back into, um, into a running base activity. I think that that's, that's another whole kettle of fish, um, in the sense that like, you, again, you're following a, like a progressive, um, like that progressive load to try and then, you know, come, come back into some form of yeah, running or wherever that might fit in the spectrum. So, you know, that, but they may not return back to running straight away. Like even, you know, because especially if they've come off like a big peritonin irritation as well, like, and, and they've had, and they've got poor strength markers, you know, in that planner, planner complex and they're, and they're underneath and they're under that desired ratio that we're really going for in a, in a run up to say, well, like risk worth reward here. If it's the Olympics or something, okay, and like we, we might, they might roll the dice. But, you know, typically from what we see from a day to day practice, you know, you've got some time to try and um, really build that complex up. And, and that might take months because depending on where they are on the spectrum and depending on how well they adhere to a, a strength protocol, um, you know, and that can take a little bit of time to try and um, get back up to that desired level to, to run um, pain-free. Yeah. And I think then the, the big thing that we see clinically is, you know, this is just from general experience, like, when, when a patient says, yeah, but I'm not an elite athlete, I'm like, well, what's the difference between you and an elite athlete? And they go, well, I'm like, you're all human. Like, you know, you're still trying to go out and, and run. Um, you know, you actually need to you actually need to push, like, you know, I, I argue that you need to push the general population a lot harder than them probably what they're expecting um, to actually get back to a level um, that's adequate to perform that, you know, task. But I think that... The, the, the problem that you can have sometimes is the general pop sit there and say, well, there's no pain, I'm good to go. And I'm like, well, no, like, you know, and so to actually have that understanding about, you know, the force, like the force that, you know, the, the, the tissue needs to absorb and, and, and also generate um, to run, um, you know, once you can explain that to someone and kind of show that what the exercise will do and, and how you can take them through a protocol to get back to you know, where they were trying to reach, um, did you really get that buy-in? Yeah. And, and, it make, and then it makes sense. Yeah. And do you use force plates um, to show them, like, some objective data? Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And I think that when you're looking at from a clinical, like a good clinical pearl um, is that, and when we're looking at asymmetric research, that, you know, that someone says, listen, seven to nine out of 10 effort. What, what the hell does that mean? Um, you know, if you get your force plates and you stand on it, this is the way that we'll calculate it. You get someone to stand on it um, and, it, and it, you can get your body weight. Um, and, and then if you multiply it by your 9.8, you're converting your body weight into newtons. And then if you're pushing into a bar that doesn't move in that, that mid-range plantar flexion, which is where you should look at you know, your, your calf, calf strength, um, to get a good, accurate, you know, snapshot of where it's at, you can then see how much force that that calf complex can actually produce, and and we would argue that you'd want to have that one point one to one point three, probably one point five times, you know, body weight, um, 
And so then you can actually use that as an objective marker, you know, to say not only, you, you know, you could be good to go back to some running, but, but also if you're going to try and train isometrics, you can say, well, I want to be at, you know, 70% or 80% or 90% of that, of that person's maximal effort. So then you can actually have a true, um, you know, true um, uh, loading guide. And I think that when we've done that clinically, someone's been like, oh, I didn't realise I could push that hard. And, you know, that's that's a lot harder than what I'm doing in the gym. Um, and and so you can, you can then really, um, you know, show someone how much they can actually do. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. So you're doing a, a true maximal, um, true maximal test to get an accurate percentage of where they are. And do you, do you compare that to like the contralateral uninjured limb or do you just base that on the limb that they're at? No, you need to compare it to the other side because the worst thing you could do is go and give them a, a loading protocol on, on the one. And then the other side's deconditioned and <laughs> yeah. you know, people are great. The bodies are really smart. They'll shift load from one side and put it on the other and they come back with a problem on the, on the next. You're like, oh, you're forever going round and round in circles. So, you know, it's um, it's something that you want to address on, on both. Yeah, for sure. Um, brilliant, mate. Um, so that kind of wraps up most of our key points. Um, just to... You mentioned briefly that you know you've you've taken one step back with the research to take steps forward, trying to get a lay of the land. What what kind of research are you looking to do, or where's where's your thought process for the future after you've got this 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 bit of research out the way? Well, I think that we'll generally speaking, without giving away too many of our secrets, <laughs> you know, like. The I think we need to we need to be able to lend ourselves to meta analysis, you know, and 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 to do that we need to have um, some really like better inclusion criteria. Like what we're using at the moment is just doesn't suffice. And so I think that you know our research will push push down that line, um, and and then I think then once we've done that. Um, Depending on how successful, I'm sure it'll be successful. But you know, um, things things always you know open to change. But I think we'll push down more the the include um, the diagnostics um, and and being able to actually say that you know certain people have different types of pathologies, um, and then having some um, yeah some nice inclusion criteria for studies in the future will um, will really strengthen the the profession of, of physio. Uh, and then and and save us potentially from others saying, listen, no, 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 no physio, fifty percent chance, heads or tails, whether or not it's going to work. Don't don't bother. You know, I think that. Um, but I think we'll go. We'll we'll get to that later. Yeah, depth of depth of application is is kind of how it sounds. Understanding, differentiating between the different nuances of of Achilles tendon pain, and being more specific with our treatments based on that. So when you talk about inclusion criteria, including certain categories as opposed to just an umbrella of Achilles tendon. Absolutely. I think that, yeah, we, we just need to get a little bit more um, more dialed in and, and to be able to then rule people in and out of, um, of study so we're just not ending up with, um, you know, um, like false positives being included in our in our um, in our populations, 
and, you know, and sample populations. And I think then, you know, from from that point of view, it, it can it can frustrate the clinician, and they're going, "Man, research is slow." You know, this is like, and 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 it might mean that for the next, you know, I don't know how many years that you know we're still going off um, studies that, um, you know, are a bit confusing in regards to. Um, who they're who they're you know putting an intervention or who they're trialing an intervention on, but um, yeah, I think that's when as a clinician you've you've got to really then maybe or potentially just hone in on your clinical experience and um, rather than just purely relying on the research alone. But I, I think the two will eventually um, really nicely come together. Yeah, brilliant. I'm really looking forward to it. And again, um, just for the listeners, we're going to post uh, a link to help complete the survey it takes literally 10 to 15 minutes and and as we discussed it's a really important aspect of evolving research to understand what's going on in clinical practice and get the lay of the land to help drive more um in-depth and more more clinically applicable research data is that right yeah absolutely and if you're a clinician listening in and you're going, oh, I've just graduated and I'm six months out, you know, Nick wouldn't want it and, you know, Ebony wouldn't want to know my opinion. Hell yeah, we do because, um, yeah, it's really it's really imperative. It's not just for the clinician that's been six, eight, ten plus years out of uni. It's, um, you know, we're, we're interested in, in, in really capturing a um, like an even sample, I should say, um, and, and so then we can, you know, see where maybe – the, the the education might be missing. That could be another thing we find from the research to say, okay, well, it's more later on down the line that we, we start to come together or who knows, but we'll get to that later. But if you, yeah, we'll, we'll, do, we'll take everyone. <laughs> Fantastic, mate. Fantastic. Nick, thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed our chat. Lots of little clinical pearls in there that, that certainly will help me in the future and our listeners. Um, just so we can stay up to date, with your research and ongoing stuff, are you on social media? What's the best way to keep up to date with what you're doing? Yeah, look, I, I we're on social media through through LinkedIn, through the practice at Melbourne CBD Physio, uh, and then also all of our research. Uh, I'd highly recommend having um, having a look at Layson through Latrobe, um, who you know they do a remarkable job releasing um, a lot of their you know their research. So uh, you might see me, uh, yeah through Layson or some of our social media channels through work. Yep. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. And thanks again for giving up some of your time, uh, your evening over there. No, that's okay. And, and look, for the listener, I hope that made um, some sense and, um, and, and really helps with some clinical practice. So thanks for having me. Big thank you to Nick for coming on today's show and sharing some of his insights and research into the management of posterior heel pain. To find more informed performance content, head to informperformance.com where you can find all our episodes as well as articles and also courses from top professionals in performance and sports medicine. And don't forget, you can also find us on social media at informperformance on Instagram or at informpod on Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Research Unpacked. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.